Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Hi, welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing in your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. Thank you, everybody, in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances or asking about Arroya pricing, although we are always down to talk about that. Just book a demo and we'll get that ball rolling. My name is Keisha. I'll be your moderator. Mandy is also on the line. What's up, Mandy? Oh my gosh. Hey, everyone. Wow, everyone's joining. Yes, people are coming in. So Mandy's going to keep an eye out for questions. And if you have any questions at any time, feel free to type them in the chat. If your question is selected, we're going to have you unmute yourself and ask away. And if you're asking a question for live for the very first time, we would love to send you an Arroyo hat. So we're going to limit that to U.S. residents, one hat per household. Plus, we are going to be raffling off some limited edition merch like this, well, maybe not this. These are very, very limited, what Mandy and I have on. Show, show everybody yours, Mandy. Let's see what you got. Yeah. But this gives you an idea of the specialness and the quality. So if you want to be entered into a raffle to win a free uh, Arroyo t-shirt, enter your uh, email address in the chat and you will be entered in to win. So Seth and Jason, how are you guys doing today? Doing well. Nice uh, weather up in the Northwest finally here. Yes. Feel it's starting to feel like summer, huh? Yeah, the switch flipped. We kind of skipped spring a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I'm wearing a hoodie, but I have shorts on. So, you know, <laughs> ready for, for everything. Awesome. Well, we're going to get right to it. We got a few questions in from Instagram. Attendees who are on with us today, don't forget to type your questions in the chat. We're actually going to start with our friends at River City Growers. They submitted two questions about sensors this week. So we're going to get started there. The first question is, how effective is the light measurement capability of an Atmos? Yeah, let's kick it off with that. Uh, Atmos 14s, they have a fairly inexpensive solar panel that's up on top of them. So the the accuracy is, it's pretty reasonable for uh, outdoor light uh, that we calibrated those based on sunshine. Uh, Hardware limitations of uh, inexpensive BV panel is that it's it's not gonna be accurate in things like HPS or LEDs. So I always like to refer to it as a light indicator rather than a, a good light intensity measurement. If we're trying to get a very accurate light intensity measurement, we'll wanna use something like the Apogee SQ521 and have that hooked up to Aurora nose so that we can always log um, that intensity and get a DLI right into the system. Great. Awesome. Thank you for that, Jason. River City Growers, their second sensor question was, what is the largest pot size you'd recommend the tariffs be used in? Oh, that's a great question. I've, I've used them in seven gallon bombs. Uh, the thing to just realize there is what the consist- consistency throughout the pot itself is, right? And so if, uh, if we used a, a hundred gallon pot that was all the same water content throughout, then the, the sensor would be pretty accurate. If we recall, the sensor itself has about a one liter volume of influence. So it, it is measuring you know, outside of, of those pens and stuff about the size of, you know, a one liter can or bottle. Um, and so 
Sure, it's great if you have a decent reference point, even in a very large media, to get an idea of what the water content is. So a properly placed Teros 12 can can be effective at, at monitoring even larger substrates. What uh, what do you think about the big ones? Yeah, I mean, the key is consistency. You know, if you're really wanting to dial it in, probably look at the sides of your pots right off the bat and go, am I, uh, am I doing a good job? Am I being consistent? And then if you're trying to experiment with some of those bigger pots, a great tool to have would be the Solus. So you can go around and check different heights on different pots and then make sure you have some consistency. So if you're going, say, like a 10 gallon pot, six or eight inches up, make sure you've got a, you know, a measuring tool that you can accurately reproduce that every single time. You know, that's, that's really what's key. Um, Typically, uh, we don't see super huge pots in applications for, you know, indoor growing just because they're not necessary. And it makes our whole crop steering process a little harder for the given size plant. And we're not, you know, typically growing plants for such a long time. If we're talking about a full term outdoor plant, that's a, a totally different story. You know, we're growing a way bigger plant for a way longer time. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and just a reminder to our attendees, type your questions in the chat. We want to hear from you. Um, our next question from Instagram comes from Bisco Paul. He wants to know when Jen flower, excuse me, when Jen steering an early flower, if you need to add a P2, when is the best time to do so? Yeah. And this kind of comes down to, to substrate size. Uh, ideally, if we have a, a well chosen substrate size we won't need to do p2 uh, irrigations during our, our generative steering uh if you know if you do need to do some p2 in order to keep yourself out of out of low water content danger zones then we usually recommend you know towards you know one hour before lights off and just do a single irrigation event um you know for our p1 events we my favorite is doing one hour um, so say one to two hours after lights on, we'll get up to field capacity within one hour of our first irrigation. And that's, that's kind of how we like to define P1s. Um, you know, you could stretch that out just a little bit as well. Uh, if you were running into those lower water contents at night. So it's just kind of understanding what your transpiration rates are and balancing that with your irrigation schedule. Yeah. And then, you know, I always like to look at basically trying to maximize the time between the end of P1 and the beginning of P2. So depending on what my irrigation system can do, if I can achieve that one hour P1 in a given room, you know, perfect. Sometimes if I have enough different zones, depending on how everything's plumbed, it might take me two hours to get through, you know, a whole rotation of P1s. But what we really want to do is just stretch that out. So like Jason was saying, an hour before lights off, you can even back it off to two and you don't need to go for a full P1 regimen. You know, let's say we're drying back and we want to correct 5%. We really only need a 5% single 5% shot. We don't need to bring it all the way back up to field capacity. And we do actually want to avoid doing that and, you know, creating an extra runoff event. Awesome. We actually had a question come through in the chat. Um, Navajo, um, did you want to take yourself off mute and ask the host directly? Um, uh, I can ask. Also, the name's Eric. I just like damn Gmail account, but uh, I, I tried to put it in the chat. I don't know if that would come through. But it's up to you guys. Whatever, whatever works. I, I'm happy to ask. Okay. Um, yeah, if you want to go ahead, uh, you might just be able to give a little bit more context. To your sure, yeah. So I want to ask, are larger dry bags, like maybe like 20%, just 
too much within veg. Um, on that note, it's like, uh, depending on, you know, like your irrigation system, some of them just kind of let you set number of shots and how many. So it's kind of hard to differentiate between P2 and P2, right? You end up saying like, you want X amount of shots every 30 minutes. You can't really dial that down from P2. So it's a limiting factor. And that kind of leads me to just, at least within veg, just going up with the P1, hitting like a target, I guess, amount of saturation and then just letting it dry back it's kind of a hassle to go back in like 3 a.m change the shot sizes or something uh I wanted to see if you guys could touch on uh how much of a i guess disservice i'd be doing to the plants without including a pq and just only having a p1 and then just drying back from there and and just to clarify you're talking about uh, your 18.6 light cycle early plant life vegetate uh, yeah okay so yeah, those, uh, those big drybacks, um, you know, in veg they're they're not bad for plants, but it depends on what kind of media you're running in. You know, if you've got a cocoa perlite mix, that's hitting 43% field capacity or drying back 20% on average in one of your sensors might be a little dangerous because some of those plants might be pushing it into that, you know, 17% below or and below, which would be pretty bad. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you're running in Rockwell Delta tens and you're first transplanting into bed and you're getting 70% water content. Yeah. Drying back to 50 is totally fine. If we're talking about your total dry back from, you know, field capacity at the end of P1, uh, till the next morning when you start again. Yeah. And you know, most of our clients, they'll be, you know, in a, a little bit smaller substrate during that early life cycle. And so seeing those 20% drybacks is really encouraging. That means that the plant is vigorously growing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's getting the exercise to the, the water content spectrum that it needs to, to reach full potential. And so I wouldn't get too concerned about it in, in veg. It probably just means that you've chosen an appropriate size of media for that time. So if you're in a, you know, a four by four by four, um, then it's going to be a great indicator that you're ready to get onto a slab or a larger media when you go into flower. And, you know, also when we're talking about veg, certain plants, uh, specifically fairly stretchy strains, it's actually nice to go, you know, a little more generative in veg even just so you can stack on some of those nodes a little earlier, keep that plant a little squattier. So, I mean, that's also strain by strain. If I'm growing something, though, that's already super squatty, I might want to get some P2s in there. But like Jason was saying, you know, that 20% dryback means you've got a healthy plant. And that's also, you know. Kind of how people have been able to take what used to be, you know, a common four or five week veg down to a two is just having that appropriately sized media. You can get the plant drinking up enough. It's not getting, you know, overwatered or having any anaerobic conditions in there. It's really letting that water come in, pulling it right back out. Eric, did oh, that answer your question? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely did. Uh, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and please drop your email address in the chat. We would love to send you an Aurora hat if we haven't already and enter you in a drawing for one of our limited edition T-shirts. And then a reminder to everybody who's on with us today, we want to hear from you. Let us know what questions we can answer. Drop those in the chat. Um, in the meantime, I've got two more questions here from Instagram. These came from BMG389. They want to know, when steering in rock wool, do you prefer to leave cubes uncovered despite algae? I don't get too bothered by algae, uh, simply because as long as it's not taking up the nutrients that your plant needs, there's not a lot of negative side effects to, to have an algae in, in, the, in the room. You can cover up your blocks if you've got the, the labor to do so. Uh, 
but like I said, I don't, I don't get usually too bothered by some algae in there. No, I mean, the thing to remember is that algae is existing in just that, you know, top less than half inch of that block, only about as far as that light can penetrate. And your plant doesn't have roots that are uptaking water in that zone. So it's not really a direct competition. Um, however, I, I do understand some people get a little bit annoyed by the sight of the algae. Personally, I'm way happier to see a nice green topped block than one with some black and white fluffies on it. So um, the cover can be a good thing, but also, you know, in my opinion, that's just another thing that you're going to have to clean every time you turn a room over. Awesome. Uh, we also had another question come through in the chats. Um, David wanted to know, um, can you do a little bit of an overview of what is P1 and P2? Um, we do a lot of uh, speaking about it, but uh, yeah, can you guys give us a little bit of background information on that? Yeah. Sure. Go ahead. So, <laughs> you know, we got P1, P2, and P3. P1 is when we're, you know, we started our lower, lowest water content and bring that block or media up to field capacity. That's our P1. After that, we get into P2, which are any shots that happen between the end of P1 and lights off. P3 is something we want to avoid. That would be, you know, an overnight shot, which it's just basically introducing humidity into the room because the plant's not going to transpire nearly as much as it would in the daytime. And from my knowledge, P is just short for phase. Yep. Phase one irrigation, phase two irrigation. Um, and like, like Seth said, P1s are just trying to get to saturation and P2s are just trying to do some maintenance shots uh, to stay at a water content that you're trying to be at. Yeah. And I mean, this goes back to, too, like for Eric, you know, um, if you find the right controller, uh, specifically like Open Sprinkler is really good about this, you can set P1, P2, P3 in your programming. You don't, you know, it just, it's a simpler way to think about it than it gives you options in saying this phase has a certain goal, thus it has the size shot, this frequency P2, like for bulking, we just have to have a different program basically. And uh, a lot of, a lot of controllers are starting to accommodate that it's coming around. Yeah. And so, you know, typical P1s uh, are going to be a little bit larger shots, maybe closer together uh, as far as the, the time frame within each other. We like to see, you know, field capacity reached within an hour of starting irrigation. And so that would be your P1 uh, time frame. P2 time frame uh, can be a much larger part of the, the day. And so sometimes those are going to be a little bit farther spaced out and almost always smaller shot sizes. Great. David, did that answer your question? I know I answered mine because um, I've always wondered what P stands for. Thank you, guys. <laughs> um, let us know. <laughs> right? <laughs> Why don't they call it I? Um, but thank you, guys. Um, and let me know if we can uh, get a little bit more clarification. You can just chat us. Um, but we do have another question that came through. Michael wants to know, will we see integration of RFID scanners for employee login? With features like kiosk, it would be very helpful. Um, it's not currently on our roadmap. It's something that, uh, I've wanted to explore. Uh, I've used RFID stickers in all types of applications, um, just for home automation stuff, vehicle automation with my cell phone, those types of things. So we do definitely recognize how valuable and quick they can be for, um, security input on, on getting into a system. Um, yeah, a lot of our clients use, uh, scan cards to access rooms uh, and that types of stuff. So it, it's something that, uh, I personally definitely would love to see us explore even further. So, um, 
yeah, maybe if Michael, you want to meet up with us sometime, talk about the specifics on exactly how that would work best for you. I'd, I'd love to have that conversation. Yeah. That'd be really fun. I really don't know the check, the technical challenge there of being able to take hopefully an existing RFID read card and, you know, be able to just scan it into Arroyo. But, um, that would be nice. I know in my experience, that's what I've used quite a bit in the past, you know, not even just in cannabis, but in uh, research and, you know, kind of any big facility anymore. It's, it's becoming standard. It's a lot easier than keeping track of keys. That's for sure. Awesome. That was great. That is Thank the truth. Yeah. I'm going to pass it back to Keisha because I think we still have some Instagram questions. Yes. Thank you, Mandy and David and Michael. Thank you both for your questions. If you have won a hat before, drop your email address in the chat because you're going to be entered to win a t-shirt too. Merch all around. Okay. We have a second question here from BM, uh, BMG 389. They want to know during the last few weeks of ripening, what are ideal CO2 levels? Yeah. You say last few weeks of ripening, usually ripening's going to be, you know, five to no more than 21 days. Uh, you know, if you're running a really long cycle, maybe it would be a few weeks total. Uh, so we'll just approach it like that. And my general rule of thumb for CO2 supplementation is take your PPFD levels and add 200, um, and use that as your, your basis for PPM levels. So if we're at uh, you know a thousand micromoles PPFD, then let's be at least 1200 PPM in CO2 supplementations. Uh, great thing. I've, I've gone on Google and there's some awesome documentation about how the plant efficiency for CO2 uptake is related directly to the, the light they're receiving. So, you know, check those out if you, if you want to just get, uh, get a really accurate number on, on how much CO2 you need to inject without, uh, we being wasteful. Yeah. Personally, it's, it'd be really hard to comment on that without doing quite a bit of studies and even probably getting strain specific at that. But as a general rule with something like CO2, you know, you, you don't really want to drop out a crop limiting factor right at the end like that. Just like we don't want to start inducing massive drought stress or completely drop all the EC out of our pot. We, we don't want that plant to be dead when we cut it down. We still want it to be healthy, just ripe. And, uh, limiting CO2. I mean, if CO2 were so expensive that, you know, cutting it down that little bit would be the make or break it on profit, then I would understand wanting to pull it back, let's say. But like Jason said, that PPFD plus 200 is a pretty good rule. And it's, it's another one of those things where, uh, as far as your time and effort in trying to perfect it, you might quickly pass the point of diminishing returns compared to just having it be a stable constant in the room rather than a variable. Yeah. And kind of just a, a thing to kind of keep in mind with CO2 is whenever we are at uh, or above the CO2 needs for that plant to be as optimized as, as it can, uh, our, our plant water use efficiency is going to be optimized as well. So if we drop down that uh, CO2 levels, it might affect our irrigation needs and transpiration rates in that plant. Everything is connected. Yes. Um, that was the last Instagram question we, we got, but I wanted to back up a little bit. I loved Michael's question about integrating RFID scanners for employees and how, how helpful that would be um, for his operation. Are there, I mean, we, we love hearing from growers because that's how we learn, you know, feature-wise what to add into Arroyo. Are there features that we have implemented as a direct result of client feedback? 
Yeah. So right. I think the kiosk is a, is a great example yeah. of that. Uh, you know, there's a number of different systems on the market where people have screens outside of a room. They can get uh, instantaneous readings on the parameters in the room without necessarily going in there. So we built up that kiosk dashboard. And one of the first things that it does is gives you the latest readings in Arroyo. It, those gauges, they're very simple and clear. You can throw up a tablet on the wall and use it dedicated for Arroyo at the glance of an eye walking past the rooms. You can easily see if you're within your target parameters or not. Anytime that you're outside of those target parameters, there's going to be a, a red the, the gauge lights up red just to indicate that, uh, hey, we've got a warning catching your eye and, and probably go check out what uh, what reasons that room isn't operating the way it wants to. Another heads up display on there is the pesticide applications. So if you uh, log a pesticide application in a room, uh, we, we tell you, hey, this is a, a restricted entry or do not enter hours after that pesticide event. So just trying to give, give a heads up on that room. The way that people can currently uh, log their tasks and, and interact on their user level within the kiosk is, is a pin. So it's a four-digit pin. Just try and make it a lot easier than, than logging in with like an email and a password. So that is the, the current shortcut for getting into the, the kiosk on a, on a quick membership level. Yeah, even you know, extending the uh, heads-up display to the general dashboard was something that customers had asked for. They used the kiosk and said, well, I just want this on my desk also. <laughs> I like this quick view. So really like customer feedback is kind of how we develop all these things. Even if you look at your manual readings uh, a year ago, let's say that was a, a much shorter list. There's about a third the number of manual readings. And, you know, some of them we... Some of them we're aware of and we're just happy to see the support. We wanted to get them put in there. Other ones are measurements that we didn't, didn't have at the top of our list, but enough customers asked for them that we pretty quickly just implemented them. So, you know, it, that kind of carries through to most of our software development. Really, we put something out, we get the feedback and then we build out from there. And that's basically how we have the best success. I mean, I don't think there's really a better way to do it personally. And ironically, the entire Arroyo product started because of customer feedback. About five years ago, I was cultivating and using the predecessor to the Terras 12. Uh, I started using Terras 12s and, and Atmos 14s as a cultivator and uh, working with some of the scientists here at Meter Group. And um, that's one of the reasons that we began targeting cannabis was the, the obvious performance, the obvious demand, and really the results that could be driven by, by checking out data and keeping an eye on it while cultivating indoors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think as a company, Meter might have investigated cannabis a little bit uh, just as a growing industry, but it was that direct outreach from growers saying, we want this, we think we need it to make our business more successful. That kind of led to the expansion from just a graph that you see to a whole platform and embracing that rather than, you know, traditionally uh, Meter, for instance, is really data driven and data focused. So that was like not necessarily... I'm sure way back then, a need that was recognized in the industry, you know, for us, we deal with a lot of people that are already on a lot of platforms with that are very specialized, but we found a whole market where people don't want to do that. And that's wonderful. I think jealous. Yeah. A, a lot of, a lot of the reason this product is the way it is, is because, uh, 
industry research going out and, you know, we spent almost two years just analyzing how people were, were growing and, and the different platforms. Uh, and, and what came obvious was that data visibility was one of the things that could definitely improve a facility's performance, making it easy for more members at the site to have visibility into the parameters of, of, uh, of operation. And so that's, that's where we tried to grab data, make it into an easy interface, uh, obviously, the um, high quality hardware that Meter has been providing for a long time by pairing it with a, an easy to use interface where we are involving more cultivation staff so that they all have visibility on, on things that are going on. It you know shares the responsibility across the facilities and it, it makes them easy to consolidate and optimize their staff. Oh, absolutely. It makes it a lot easier for people to collaborate and get data into the platform versus uh you know, 10 years ago, looking at utilizing the same data would have been a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of producing graphs, having meetings, talking about that, you know, you'd have one person hired just to do some of the analytics that Arroyo can do for you. So it's, and that was something, you know, that the cannabis industry wasn't at, in the beginning able to support necessarily, you know, for the longest time, it's always been that line for producers like, okay, well, we want to do a lot of research and development, but that takes away from our production space. You know, we're, we're still a young business. A lot of the times we don't have, you know, necessarily the, the capital to just throw away 20% of a room and say, okay, we don't care what happens to that or potentially that whole room. So, uh, Arroyo has helped us be able to gather a lot of data and help growers gather data without having to sacrifice necessarily their production. Yeah. I think for, for me, a really exciting ability of embracing technology in, in agriculture and especially in the cannabis is cannabis grows so quickly that we have to make decisions faster. Um, I used to do manual data entry and Excel, Excel spreadsheets and, and plot it out. Uh, that was sometimes hopefully on a weekly basis that, that I could get our manual readings in for, for the crops. And it was a significant amount of time that was spent on that. Uh, if there was a, a high uh, compliance and or automation demands, a lot of times I didn't get around to that data entry and it would be three weeks later until we were actually analyzing how this crop is performing. And, and by that time, it, it's sometimes too late to really make the improvements that you can. And you've at least lost quite a bit of, of opportunity simply because of that delay between analysis and, uh, and change. Yeah. And with that, the quick life cycle that cannabis has in production, I mean, that's, that's crucial when we're talking about, you know, traditional ag research, we're looking at a whole growth cycle and then, you know, just monitoring and implementing changes on the next one. Well, the, the profit that you stand to lose by waiting that long to implement certain changes in your cannabis production facility is just too big. I mean, you're leaving way too much on the table. And for a lot of people that can be, you know, the make it or break it line. I love being able to hear how this was all based on the needs and the pain points of cannabis cultivators and the experience that you guys have had with, um, with meter group and everything coming together, how it has. Um, that's awesome. Uh, thank you guys for that. We've been getting a lot of questions in our chat though. Um, so I'm just going to go back up our list. Um, Eric wants to know, do we have any thoughts on low stress therapy, um, slash multiple toppings? How much of an increase should we expect if we put in the extra work? I'm, 
personally not a huge fan of topping. Uh, you know, if you're running into that big of inconsistencies between your plant growth, it's probably worth looking at other processes uh, up to that point in in the plant life cycle. Uh, you know, when we're growing as much biomass as fast as we can, we want to make sure that all the energy the plant is putting out into its growth is going to be utilized in a sellable product. And, and so that's one of the reasons that we do generative steering uh, is to control the plant height, get as much weight as we can, get those node spaces built up and optimize every bit of energy and nutrients going into that plant. Yeah, really, when it comes down to it, you know, um, you kind of got to start balancing your input costs and time versus what you're getting out of it. So like with multiple toppings, for instance, every time we top, we're going to slow plant growth down for a few days. It's going to be not optimal. So that stretches out our total production time. So if we're doing that twice and that slows down the plant for three or four days each time, we've, you know, effectively added 12 days or not 12 days, <laughs> six to eight days, sorry, to our total cycle. And that's, you know, that's less grams per square foot per year in the end, basically. So, uh, one thing you want to look at is, you know, potentially just smaller plants, higher plant density. The other question I guess I would have for Eric is if you're running somewhere with like, let's say a plant count and a cap on your, you know, the number of plants you can have in the facility, that might be a different conversation. There's always like special exceptions to the rule, obviously, but I'm with Jason in that, uh, I, I like to touch the plants as little as possible to be honest, because that means I'm putting the least amount of effort into it. And that's kind of our ultimate goal. And also when it comes to low stress training, um, I'll just say when I was, you know, growing medically at home, big fan of it. <laughs> like I said, a limited plant count and I'm not trying to produce as much as fast as possible. So that can really maximize my space at the expense of a little bit of time. Uh, but that's just not the case in most commercial situations, you know, and really, uh, we, we want like that best expression of the plant and the more you do to it, the more, not only are you going to stall it, but you have the potential of having, you know, unwanted growth due to hormonal reactions from your over pruning or accidents. Um, minimal touch is best. Um, Eric, did that answer your question? Uh, do you want to chime in with a little bit more context or? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, obviously it, it's a little bit smaller, uh, so it's just like extra work. Uh, you have to, you know, depending on your inputs, how many employees you have, et cetera, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can make that decision. Um, my thing was, I guess, having one big cola relative to like more of a bunch of uniform colas, if you could say, or like two main colas, three main colas. It just seemed like I could, uh, this is my first one kind of like experimenting with it. It seemed like I could get a little bit more yield out of it. And like you're mentioning, you know, like when you're growing medically at home, maybe you did like it, but, uh, uh, I guess it does just come down to, you know, to, uh, I wanted to think about like what percentage of an increase could I expect if you do put in that extra work, right? Like, yes, you're going to delay the the time to revenue, right. you know, if you are going to theoretically, I mean, I would hope increase yield as a result. Right. And that was the, you know, I wanted to see it. I wanted to get an idea of the percentage increase you could expect given that short, if, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. It does. And, you know, I, anyone that's been around the industry has heard of the sea of green approach for a long time. Uh, and that's really just trying to get as much light to as many colas as you can. Uh, in almost any of uh, plant biologies that we look at, and especially in cannabis, uh, 
there's a thing called apical dominance. And what's going on there is each of these plants is reaching up towards the light as much as it can to get more of the light than any of the competitors around it. Uh, and get as close to that light as possible. So by making sure that you are hitting a high intensity light schedule and you are getting those generative events in there, you can build out some good nodes early on in that plant life cycle and try and reduce the chance of uh, apical dominance, making it so your lower ends are, are more larfy and are being out um, outspoken, if you will, for light by that, that top cola. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the purpose of uh, topping in general is to try to defeat the apical dominance in that one branch. And the main way you're going to actually achieve that is by topping very early if you're going to do it so that your plant splits very low to the ground. That's going to give you the best shot for actually achieving it. In the end, you probably will have one branch that does become a little bit more apically dominant. Uh, but the key really with the topping is not to do it too late. So like if you're doing multiple toppings and that's part of why it'll really stretch it out, you know, that first one is critical when you say, say you have eight nodes, we're going to top that top one off, give us some nice structure, even down to five or six nodes, take that top one. That way we get nice, even branching coming up. But if we let that turn into a pole with 12 nodes and then top that one top one too late, we're not going to get that nice bushing out response that we want. Plus we're then going to be waiting, you know, probably two weeks hoping to get that response and then what will most likely happen is you'll just have a leader take off again and become your main cola. So if you're, you know, if you want to top and you want to uh, increase your yield that way, I'm not going to guarantee you see a huge yield increase from it, but what it can do is help you have a lot more consistency. So instead of having, you know, like, let's say, especially if you're in a high humidity situation, you're having trouble with that. You want to don't want really big colas because they might mold. Or, uh, you know, you've noticed that your top cola is way better quality because it's eight inches to a foot higher up in the light than your lower ones at chop. It might be nice to top that and bring it down to just a more consistent canopy. But again, it all depends on your commercial situation. If you're smaller and you can justify the time investment because you get a little bit better quality, it's worth it. But I, I, I personally don't think there's a huge yield increase. And it's also highly strain dependent. Some strains don't respond to topping well at all. Awesome. Eric, um, please let us know if, uh, if you want to ask any additional questions, but, uh, thank you guys for that. We've been getting a lot of questions in the chat still. Um, so I'm going to go back up, uh, to Michael's question. Will we see a substrate pH sensor in the future, in the future? So, uh, Probably not a pH sensor specifically from Meter Group. We are working on a product to uh, allow other types of sensors to be plugged into the Orion network. Um, and that's including specifically an inline or, or batch tank pH meter. Uh, typically, those pH meters are using a, a voltage output and the, the actual brain connected to a, a pH sensor doesn't care necessarily whether it is like a elite probe or other types of uh, substrate pH sensor. The one thing I do talk about there is just, you know, the actual usage of a pH sensor in the substrate. It can be difficult to maintain. It can jeopardize your, your substrate consistency. And so, you know, the other ways of getting pH is looking at your input pH and your output pH and then drawing, drawing the line between those two to establish what your substrate pH is. Yeah. And personally, I, I just really like redundance, honestly. I like to go get a quality benchtop pH meter that's laboratory grade so that you have a standard to test against, you know. Um, if you're 
dealing with sensors that might not be the most accurate and suddenly you've got six different probes that are all telling you something different, you're, you're kind of in a bad spot. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of those things that you always want to have, you know, a solid backup and even keeping the litmus strips around, you know, just some indicators so you can quickly go, yep, this one's close or <laughs> nope. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think it goes without saying, but you know, pH sensors always do very regular calibrations, um, depending on the quality of it, that might be something where you're doing a calibration every day. Um, some of the higher quality ones don't necessarily need it every day, but, uh, having an extra to benchmark what the rest of your pH sensors are doing is definitely a good way. If you're on a budget, have one, at least one really high quality pH meter and calibrate the rest of them. Um, with that one in mind. So, uh, the, some of that expen- gets expensive very quickly and, and right. I understand that. Yeah. Things you want to look for if you're looking for quality are, you know, a pH meter that wants to, that the manufacturer wants you to calibrate very regularly daily or close to it. And then also, you know, a two or three point calibration rather than a single point so that you can establish high, low, neutral, uh, rather than a single point where you're just establishing one point and not necessarily those outside parameters quite as well. Awesome, Michael. Thank you for asking it. Another great question. Um, oh, Michael also wrote, he agrees with the daily uh, calibration. Wrote blue pad is great and fragile. <laughs> blue lab, blue lab. He recommends blue lab. Thank you for that, Michael. Let us know if you have any other questions or want to add to that. We are getting a lot of write-ins today. I'm really excited about this next one. It came from Francis. They're asking, when is the best time to implement Arroyo if I'm starting a new facility before or after I get my environmental conditions dialed in? Ideally, as soon as you can. Uh, I've had customers that uh, have Arroyo sitting in their facility waiting for the plants to come in. And the nice thing there is that they can dial in their environment before plants are in there. Much easier to do last minute reconfigurations of of HVAC stuff. Uh, And obviously hit the ground running as fast as you can. So it's, if you can have a a month of monitoring with your system uh, before you even get plants in there, that's awesome. It's probably not super realistic. I know everybody that's getting this facility online or uh, hitting hitting their plants in the rooms as fast as they possibly can. And sometimes that means that uh, all the ends and pieces aren't quite tied together. So as soon as you can, start getting Arroyo, uh, log that data in there. You look at your light levels, your humidity levels, your uh, temperature levels. And uh, obviously they're going to be a little bit different once your plants are in there and you're transpiring and you have uh, less reflectance, all that type of stuff. Uh, but making sure that everything is operating reliable is a, is a great way to start a facility. If you're already running, get it as soon as you can. Uh, if you're having problems, get it. If you're not having problems, get a riot and make sure you keep running that yeah. way. Document your success. You know, if you're already running, just get it. <laughs> it's going to help you. Um, honestly, if I was looking at building a facility, uh, especially if I was buying an existing building, pretty much as soon as I was able to get into that building, I'd want to get the environmental monitoring going because depending on, especially if I had the ability to put a sensor outside, if I can start monitoring the difference between outside and inside as soon as possible and have as much information about that, that's going to help me make some you know critical HVAC decisions, insulation decisions, things like that. Um, that way I could you know, theoretically do that ahead of time and not put Band-Aids on something after I built it and went, oh no, 
<laughs> it's way more humid here than I thought it would be at night. Or, you know, there's a lot of those little things that we spend a lot of time helping customers identify and, you know, deal with in their environment. Um, that had they had access to this type of information, even, you know, without having a really tightly buttoned up building, they could have made some really good decisions ahead of time and not had to spend money and then spend more money to replace equipment that they hoped would work, but ended up not. Yeah. We, we always look at manuals from equipment manufacturers for evaluating the theoretical capabilities of them. Sometimes it's not always exactly how it works out in the real world. So do some tests in your room to benchmark it, you know, turn your dehums way up and see how quickly you can drop your absolute humidity. And that'll give you an idea of, Hey, when we do start growing plants in there, mm -hmm. are we going to be at the edge of our equipment? Or are we going to have a little bit of headroom that uh, crop steering isn't going to put us over the edge? Right. Exactly. You really want to map that out as much as possible. Yep. Set yourself up for success from right from the start, right? Excellent. Okay. We got one more writing question here from Baby Got Drybacks. And to our attendees who are on, still time to answer your questions. So let us know what you want to know. This person would like to know if there are any new case studies dropping this week. Baby Got Drybacks, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, we have a lot of wonderful case studies dropping. Mandy, Jason, I mean, Jason and I actually went on the road to film some of those case studies a while back and uh, we're about to hit the road again, right? Yeah, yeah, it's super exciting. We're doing two coasts this time, east and west. So super yes. exciting. So what's great about these case studies is it just kind of distills down, you know, what we're doing at their facility and how Arroyo has helped them out. Um, you know, sharing some results where they can, just kind of giving an idea of just how that visibility into the data has helped them you know, be able to just grow better. Um, and this is, again, like we talked about earlier, just knowing what, what you all need, what the cultivators need, what is working for you, understanding your pain points helps us figure out how to help you. That's what we're here for. So, yeah. We've been, we've been dropping uh, case studies, I think about every week um, for a while now. And uh, we did those earlier this year. Like Keisha said, it was a really great time to spend that much of a day at clients' facilities, getting some some shots and then hearing their stories, um, even way outside of, of Arroyo, just their experiences cultivating some of their challenges that they've been through. And uh, I think we dropped one today. Um, so jump on our YouTube, start, start watching those case studies, see what your challenges if they're shared with who our, our clients are and, and what types of opportunities they've had from, from implementing Arroyo. And, uh, you know, also jump on YouTube, start listening to our previous open office hours. It's, it's what we do. It's what we love to do for education and, and provide the best information to our clients as possible. We want, we want the most success from the products that we offer, um, regardless of, you know, whether these are considered trade secrets or, or not. It, it's just science for us. Mm -hmm. That's it. We're about all of you succeeding. We dropped a link in our chat to our case studies on arroyo.io slash case hyphen studies. Take a look, get caught up. We on YouTube. We've got all of our office hours episodes for a resource for you. Um, okay. So we, we haven't received any other questions. Maybe everybody knows everything that they want to know. Oh, 
not so fast. Eric, Eric, you want to unmute yourself? And ask Excuse me. Yeah, I can just ask it. This is more of a like data question, but um, usually I have a six by six by six Ugos that I flip, uh, flip onto a, a Uniswab. And uh, you guys just kind of worrying me. You guys are always talking about how you don't want to have too small of a substrate when you're flipping the flower. Usually I have my Uniswab. I decide to just do Ugos this time and see how I could, uh, uh, you know, I, I obviously have better drybacks uh, if it's a small immediate, but I was worried if it was too small. I was wondering what's the best, uh, largest you guys have seen people go in the six by sixes without kind of being too small. Um, I, I think I, the number I remember is five foot is too big for a six by six by six, which I'm hoping to get around four feet to the, from the bottom to the top of my plant. Would you guys think that's too big? It's still pushing it, I think, personally. Just, uh, you know, the problem with the Hugos is the footprint is really small and we're really only using, you know, the bottom two to three inches of that for water retention. So, like, later in flower, that thing's actually fairly root-bound. You know, we don't even have that much more room for extra water in there. And uh, you kind of get cornered into a really small gas tank for your dry bags at the end, you know, when you're trying to run generative and ripen. It becomes very, very difficult to run later. Uh, I think Jason and I both would generally recommend switching to more like the four by four by four Delta tens and throwing those on a slab. Yeah, I, I mean that's some of my favorite media configurations: a four by four by four or four by four by three, and uh, that way you can hit your eighteen six fed cycle with great drybacks, get that plant raging by the time that you're ready. Put them on slabs. You go to slabs, flip them over, give them a little bit of time to to run in and start steering. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Eric, another great question. Thank you so much for, for asking. Um, those are all the questions we have so far. Um, Seth, Jason, anything you want to say as we as we wrap it up in the next few minutes? Any other uh, words, nuggets of wisdom? Mm -hmm. We appreciate everyone's uh, participation. Uh, it's what makes this show so much fun is getting everybody's questions directly from them and, and uh, answering, sharing our knowledge on the fly. Yeah. Thanks for asking questions today, guys, especially those of you who uh, came on the show, asked in person. That's always fun. Nice to uh, see the face of some of our people, hear their voices. Yeah, that's always great. Thank you all so much for attending. If you did not drop your email address in the chat, you might want to because we're giving away a limited mystery t-shirt. So we'd love to pick a winner. Um, but thank you to everybody who, uh, for joining us. Thank you, Seth and Jason, for another excellent conversation. Thank you, Mandy, for being my, my partner, my co-pilot. Um, thank you, everybody who joined us this week for Arroyo Office Hours Live. If you have any questions about Arroyo, um, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process, or any other topic you'd like covered in a future Office Hours session, post it in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or send us an Instagram DM. We want to hear from you. We we record every session. We'll email everybody in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. It will also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next time. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.